Pompeii. What do we know about it before that fateful day? What happened during the eruption? And what are some of the wider questions surrounding what we know or think we know? Join me for Pompeii, before, during and after. What have the Romans ever done for us? Hi, and thanks for listening. My name is Neil, and this is the Ancient History Hound podcast. You can find me on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger, and find lots of ancient history-themed content on my website, ancientblogger.com. In this podcast, I'm going to look at Pompeii prior, during, and after the eruption. In the first part, I'll discuss how Pompeii grew, what it might have been like, and some of the notable events and characters. In the second part, I'll work through the sequence of events of the eruption. In the third part, I'll conclude with some of the questions about Pompeii, such as how it can mislead us, and I'll even include the debate over the date. Before I go any further, I need to acknowledge one source which is incredibly helpful in creating this podcast. I bought Mary Beard's book on Pompeii a few years back. If you find yourself really drawn to all things Pompeii, then I heartily recommend it. Three studies also help me understand the events, and much of the data concerning the destructive force of the eruption and the victims are sourced from these. The first is titled, Impact of the AD 79 Explosive Eruption in Pompeii, Causes of Death of the Inhabitants Inferred by Stratigraphic Analysis and Aerial Distribution of the Human Casualties. This has got several authors, so I suggest searching for it via the title. The second also has a few authors to it. Its title is, The Eruption of Vesuvius of 79 AD and Its Impact on the Human Environment of Pompeii. The third is Lethal Thermal Impact of Periphery of Pyroclastic Surges Evidences at Pompeii. If you get a chance, they're all very interesting, albeit niche reads. I'll also try and post some links to these so you're more able to look them up. I'll start then with Pompeii before the eruption. And anyone visiting it today will perhaps use it to help them imagine what a Roman city was. But it certainly never started out that way. The walls date to the 6th century BCE, before Rome was anything other than a bellicose faction far to the north. In fact, it wasn't even until 80 BCE that it became a formalised Roman colony. Pompeii sits in the area often referred to in antiquity as Magna Graecia, which translates roughly as Big Greece. A more specific region where it is located in is Campania. Both Campania and the wider Magna Graecia were host to a number of Greek colonies, hence the name Magna Graecia, and these had sprouted up in the 8th and 7th centuries BCE. Places like Cumae, Tarentum and Thurii were in fact initially Greek colonies. Exactly who founded Pompeii remains something of a mystery. Along with Greeks, there are the locals who spoke Oscan and the Etruscans. And you might know that this part of Italy was great for farming and sat on a nice trading route. This made it a prize to be fought for. Early on, Etruscan dominance was replaced by Greeks, who themselves were then ousted by the Samnites, a tribe who hailed from the Apennine Mountains and who were often referred to as Hardy. It was within the context of the Samnites that Pompeii is first mentioned by Livy. Rome was contesting the region, surprise, surprise, with the Samnite tribes, and in 310 BCE, P. Cornelius landed an army at Pompeii. Their aim wasn't Pompeii itself, but the nearby town of Nuceria, presumably allied to the Samnites or important to them. Two things are worth noting here. The first is that the army was landed via a fleet. Pompeii was located far closer to the shore in this period, which further explains its allure from a trading perspective. Secondly, Nusira will appear later on, so just make a mental note. Rome's expanding influence southwards in the 3rd century BCE 
didn't bring it into direct conflict with Pompey. During the Second Punic War, Hannibal tried to pry Rome's allies from it, but Pompey seems to have been left to itself by either side. New Syria allied with Rome and was sacked by Hannibal. Capua sided with Hannibal and was sacked by Rome. Whereby nearby places fared very badly, Pompey expanded and grew. Professor Beard supposes that refugees and other displaced people may have swollen Pompey's numbers and acted as a sort of catalyst for its expansion. In the 2nd century BCE, Pompeii must have been a place on the proverbial map to visit. Though obliged to Rome, it retained its independence. The locals spoke their native language, Oscan, and they seem to have lived pretty well if we take the cumin and pepper found as indicating elite tastes. Even spoils from the sack of Corinth were found there. It was certainly well connected. The romance with Rome wasn't to last forever. In the 1st century BCE, the allies of Rome went to war with it. Not because they hated Rome, but because they wanted more rights, and this is known as the Social War, and both sides won. Rome won in the conventional sense, but the Allies also won because they gained full citizenship. In the course of the Social War, it was besieged by Sulla, who you might have heard of. His siege of Pompeii in 79 BCE was successful, and anyone who's read anything about Sulla might be wincing, but fear not, he refrained from sacking the city, although he did install a number of his veterans there, just to keep everyone on their toes. Being part of Rome had its pros and its cons. It certainly benefited Pompeii in ways you could directly observe in the city. Take the amphitheatre, capable of holding 20,000 people, or the pipe water system, and of course the baths. The cons, if you consider them so, was that Pompeii lost some of its identity. Latin was now the official language, and it replaced Oscan. Politically, the government structure changed, with two senior magistrates or duovirs in charge. From what we can see on the inscriptions, the more traditional Oscan families had less involvement as Roman names, or possibly those of the colonists, start to appear more frequently. But perhaps that didn't bother your average Pompeian, who wouldn't have had access to this level of political power anyway, but did have baths and an amphitheatre. Prior to the eruption in the 1st century CE, two events are worth commenting on. The first was a riot in 59 CE during a gladiatorial show, not between Pompeians, but between Pompeians and visitors from New Syria. Remember them from earlier? There's a fantastic fresco of the riot which shows as much fighting going on in the amphitheatre as outside it. Tacitus even referred to it and commented that Pompey was barred from holding any games for 10 years and the sponsors of the show were exiled. The second event was more chaotic and in retrospect, possibly a forewarning of things to come. In 62 CE, an earthquake hit Pompeii, causing widespread damage. Seneca even noted that 600 sheep died during this, not from structural collapse, but from tainted air, presumably as they were grazing in the countryside near Pompeii. This might seem a curious aside, but a feature of increased volcanic activity can be the release of poisonous gases in and around the volcano. In the modern period, this is something they actually monitor as part of trying to anticipate eruptions. By the time of the eruption, Pompeii seems to have been thriving, although there is some question as to whether the earthquake of 62 CE had checked that growth somehow. It was a place with a strong commercial and industrial base. Storage for approximately 10,000 litres of wine was found in one farm. It produced garum, the famous fish sauce. Professor Beard has convincingly argued that the streets facilitated a one-way system so carts could get around more quickly. This must have been even more practical given that carts were banned during the day. Just imagine then trying to get around it at night and coming head to head with someone the other way. And just in case you didn't get the message, 
mosaics have been found with welcome profit and profit is pleasure written in them. It's not quite greed is good, but it's getting close. But then trade had always been important and part of bringing imports in from distant shores meant that new ideas and cultural touch points existed. A skeleton of a priest of Isis, an Egyptian cult, was found. There was a temple of Apollo. Even in a demographic sense, people seemed to have integrated. Rich houses and poorer ones existed as neighbours, though perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself, as being neighbours doesn't always mean you'll be chatting over a proverbial garden fence. The point being, there wasn't a huge amount of demarcation between any two types of people. Pompeii was and is 240 kilometres from Rome, which is around three days' journey, and the area of Campania housed many a rich Roman summer retreat. Cicero, for example, failed to enjoy many a day in his summer home whilst writing slightly tetchy letters. Pompeii and the area it sat in must have been a quite brilliant place to witness much of the varieties of life which existed in the Roman Empire. In terms of population, various numbers have been discussed ranging from 6,000 to 34,000, with 20,000 often given as the sort of safe option. There is a difficulty in estimating the numbers of people in Pompeii at the time of its eruption, and I'll come to that in more detail when I sum up later. At that point, I'll also pick up on the debate about the date of Vesuvius's eruption. The generally accepted date is 24th of August 79 CE, and that's the one we're most familiar with, most likely anyway. Yet there's been a dialogue over whether this is correct. For the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to go with this date, but I just wanted to add that caveat in now. I've briefly covered the before part of this podcast, and I'm now going to move to the during, or the eruption. Sunrise on the morning of the 24th of August 79 CE was about half six in the morning as it is today. That is according to a handy web page. It was also a Tuesday, by the way, not that Romans had Tuesdays, but I thought it'd be fun to mention. After all, everything from now on gets understandably macabre. Around 1pm Vesuvius erupted. It was a huge explosion, and were I to give you numbers alone, it might not frame the sheer immensity of it all. The thermal energy released alone was equivalent to 100,000 Hiroshima events. This presented itself to anyone watching as a dark column reaching up through the sky, and estimates has given a maximum height of this column as 20 miles. To give a frame of reference for this, commercial aircraft generally cruise at an altitude of between 5.5 and 7.5 miles. The shape of the eruption was described by Pliny the Younger as looking like a pine tree, and this is where the term the Plinian eruption comes from. After 30 minutes or so, pumice would have fallen, and in fairness this doesn't sound all that bad, although amongst this you'd also have volcanic bombs falling. As lava cools in the air, it forms rock, which is a volcanic bomb, and this can cause significant damage and death, depending on how big it is and where it hits you. Imagine yourself in this sort of a situation. By now it's dark as the column has spread out and reduced the daylight. It must have been a really scary place to be. Perhaps some people made to escape Pompeii amongst what was now becoming a more unfamiliar landscape. In order to escape these conditions you might seek refuge. A lit doorway with a recognisable voice offered physical and mental comfort. Except that's not going to provide you with much protection. In fact, it could be a very, very bad idea. Pumice might seem light, but it would slowly accumulate on roofs and buildings, finding a place to settle. It's estimated that buildings or structures such as roofs, which accrued 40 centimetres of pumice, would fail, meaning they'd collapse. 
If we factor in the average rate of fall for pumices, 15 centimetres per hour, then buildings would be collapsing within three or four hours of the eruption. Approximately 1,044 bodies have been discovered at Pompeii. 345 were found in buildings and under large amounts of pumice. The conclusion drawn was that they were victims of building collapses, or at least this contributed significantly to their deaths. A further 49 were located outside buildings. They too were at the same level as those inside buildings. And in case you wonder what I mean by level, don't worry, as I'll come to this later. Exactly how they died is less obvious. It's possible they were hit by falling structures, perhaps even the volcanic bombs, but at best, this is informed guesswork. Of this grouping, 200 were found in groups and 194 isolated finds. By the evening of the 24th of August, Pompeii would have been in total darkness for some time. Even if you'd survived to this point, the conditions must have been stifling. The pumice stripped moisture from the air. Water was at a premium. Any underlying conditions would have been making themselves known. And by midnight, it's estimated that the level of pumice could have been as high as 3 metres in some places. Moving outside must have been close to impossible. The ground level was much higher and formed of hot debris. It wouldn't have been stable and much like travelling across snow, you could find yourself falling into a sort of hot crevasse. But the biggest problem wasn't at your feet, it was above, firing out of Vesuvius and deep into the sky. More specifically, what would happen when it stopped going up? Most people think of lava when picturing volcanoes, but in truth it's not really the most dangerous aspect of an eruption. The speediest lava will only travel at around 6 miles an hour across open ground. What was far more lethal for the residents of Pompeii was a PDC, or pyroclastic density current. This is formed when the column stops firing upwards and collapses. The result is a sort of avalanche formed of superheated gas and rock. It can reach speeds of up to 450 miles an hour and reach temperatures of 1000 degrees. The PDCs which reached Pompeii weren't as high as this, but simply put, they didn't need to be. As you might realise, much of what we know about the eruption of Vesuvius rests on scientific models and what can be gleaned from the site itself. The evidence suggests that six PDCs resulted from the column collapsing at Vesuvius. The first three didn't make it as far as Pompeii. The fourth, however, did, and it arrived around dawn of the 25th of August. The Pompeii it reached would have been one of broken buildings, and no recognisable features at street level, or very few. This PDC wasn't particularly potent by PDC standards. It carried little in the way of debris and wasn't really moving that quickly, but it was at least 200 or 250 degrees Celsius. This caused mass fatalities, and for some this was the coup de grace and finished any survivors off. But I should add the caveat that there are arguments that some people survived after this, not that they'd last much longer, as the remaining PDCs which hit Pompeii would surely have been the end. Pompeii had been subjected to two different volcanic events, the continual fall of pumice and the later PDCs. The result was that layers of different types of debris lay atop each other. The lower layers, formed by the pumice, and the later PDCs, each added a layer which were visually distinct and on top of each other. This stratification, or to use a technical term, stratigraphy, allowed a further insight into how and when a person most likely died. For example, those within the lower levels of the pumice were likely to have been killed early on and then covered. Anyone above them most likely died later. I've mentioned the 
earlier victims, the 394 who were located primarily in the lower pumice, but 650 were found at a higher layer. Perhaps these were people who were able to escape the collapsing buildings from earlier, or were in ones which partially collapsed, uh, or were just outside and were somehow able to avoid being killed. Unlike the earlier victims, the split was roughly 50-50 as to being inside versus being outside. 498 were found in groups, with 152 as individuals. What this suggests to me is that following the collapse of buildings, there were fewer in which any sort of cover could be found, and so people started grouping together. The cause of death in Pompeii is another contested topic. It's incredibly difficult to diagnose and apportion a cause of death with little evidence. How many died of heart attacks? How many were already seriously ill? But what about the remaining 650 people? As mentioned, they were caught out by the PDCs, and many of them exhibit a common pose, whereby their hands are outstretched in front of them. One theory was that they were victims of looters. The pose resulted, therefore, from them having their hands out in front of them to defend themselves, though exactly how and why you'd want to loot in that situation is a bit unclear. There's also the argument that people asphyxiated from the gases and simple lack of oxygen, which the conditions of the PDCs forced onto anyone still alive in Pompeii. Other theories have come into play and argued that the poses were caused by the sudden exposure to intense heat. A cadaveric spasm is stiffening in certain groups of muscles which were in contraction at that time of death. This can be caused by a number of factors and it's posited that a superheated gas cloud would be a viable candidate for this. It's also worth considering a condition called the pugilistic pose, which results more specifically from a body being exposed to extreme heat and is often seen in victims of fires. This presents as flexion in the knees, arms, neck and hips as the muscles suddenly shorten and it takes its name from a pose which makes the victim seem as if they're holding their hands out in front of them as a boxer might. However, as mentioned, flexion can occur in other parts of the body. One of the studies I mentioned in the introduction even examined the bones of horses and people found in Pompeii. At a forensic level, they could determine the type of microfracture in the bones, which indicated that they'd been exposed to temperatures between 250 and 300 degrees. Of course, it's possible that many things killed many people in Pompeii. If you remove the PDCs and the building collapses, the conditions alone would have been fatal to many who were already carrying a condition or just not in the best of health. The main debate pivots on what was the major decider. From the evidence provided, it seems that the sudden exposure to high temperatures following the fourth PDC looks like the main culprit. If nothing, it would have been a near instantaneous death, which I suppose is a small mercy. I think that's enough death for at least one podcast, and I'm now going to move into the third part, the after. So I'm going to lighten the mood a bit and pick up on some of the wider discussions about how we can interpret Pompeii as well as the challenges this presents. I'll start by giving you an example. You may have read or heard about the skeleton found in the gladiator barracks. It was concluded that this was a rich woman given the jewellery, and one interpretation of this was that the eruption literally caught someone in the act. It's not an unfair assumption to make, particularly given the reputation which gladiators had. But hold on a sec. A very different conclusion can be sought when further details come to light. The rich woman was certainly in the barracks, there's no getting away with that, but it wasn't one gladiator. There was in fact 17 other gladiators found, as well as the remains of two dogs. It now feels a bit more like 
a case of people trying to survive a disaster and clubbing together. Perhaps she was trying to escape Pompeii, ran past the building and decided to duck in for some cover. In this case, the motive behind this was to sensationalise it by adding a bit of a salacious angle. But it also points to another dangerous conclusion often drawn, which is that Pompeii was somehow frozen in time. It's possible that you never thought this, so I duly apologise if that's the case, but there is a tendency for Pompeii to be thought of in this manner. And this can skew conclusions drawn, and also provide a possible misread of the evidence there. To illustrate this better, I'll posit the idea that Pompeii was largely evacuated prior to the eruption. And this is supported by a number of arguments and evidence. Perhaps the memories of the earthquake in 62 CE had made residents a bit wary about anything unusual. As such, when Vesuvius started to puff smoke in the morning of the 24th of August, some folk didn't need a second reminder. This is also backed up by the body count. If we use the earlier suggested population size of 20,000 people, more remains might have been expected to have been found. It's true that Pompeii isn't fully excavated yet, but given what has been unearthed, we'd still expect to find more remains. A large number of the population leaving en masse would have changed what remained. Some rich residences had little in the way of furniture. Was this because that's how the occupants lived? Or was it because they'd removed the furniture when they'd evacuated? This particular problem isn't just limited to what was or what wasn't left on the 24th of August. After all, Pompeii wasn't just left and forgotten. There's evidence of tunnels in Pompeii. They might have been by returning residents or opportunistic thieves. The tunnels are quite small, and we even have the skeletal remains of children in some which collapsed. In one example, two adults and a child were found in one room of the house of the Menander. They carried a pick and a hoe, so were they locals trying to tunnel out of a building being slowly covered in debris, or were they a returning party who were victims of a tunnel collapsing? In some homes, the walls even had tunneled written on them, which might suggest that these weren't one-off scavengers, but part of something far more organised. Pompeii has offered us so much in the way of insights, it's easy to get wrapped up in thinking it captured a normal moment in time. Obviously, this is true in many ways, and I'm duly thankful for it, but it's always worth keeping this in mind. I'm going to finish with one question that may never be fully answered, though obviously I hope it does, and that's the date of the eruption. The idea that Vesuvius erupted later than the 24th of August of that year has gained traction most recently, a scribble on the wall in charcoal, which I'll come to in a moment, supplied another line of evidence. I'll give a brief rundown of some of the points which support this. Firstly, the date of the 24th of August is given by Pliny the Younger in one of his letters, but this wasn't the only date referenced. Cassius Dio, for example, mentions the end of October. Secondly, there's the archaeological evidence. Scientists were able to analyse what remained in Pompeii and they found evidence of lots of fruit which would have been harvested in late September. There was even a large amount of wine stored and this wouldn't be in place in early August. Thirdly, analysis was done, this time on the dispersal of the debris. Much of this was blown by winds and the way the debris was distributed matches wind patterns prevalent in late autumn rather than summer. And then there's that scribble. Recently, an inscription was found which had been done in charcoal. It gives a date of 17th of October. I'm given the modern calendar version, as you most likely guessed. It would be unlikely for the inscription to have lasted a year, which means it was made later that year and after the traditional date. I suppose the main problem is that people generally like dates in ancient history, and if you're going to replace one, 
then it's better to have a specific date rather than a it happened later. As such, until a more accurate and verifiable date comes into play, the 24th of August will probably come to occupy a more token date as more evidence pushes for a later date of eruption. And with that, I come to the end of the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this, found it useful, or dare I say it, even both. I had recorded a podcast on Pompeii a few years back, but initially decided to give it a reboot, and eventually it snowballed. I rewrote the whole thing and recorded it over the course of a weekend. Ideally, I'd like to have gone into much more detail, but c'est la vie. As ever, please review if you listen to this on iTunes and spread the word generally. If you want to get in touch, I'm at AncientBlogger on Twitter, so it would be good to hear from you, and again, my website is ancientblogger.com. Till next time, stay well and keep safe.